I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guests are two physics professors at New Mexico State University, Boris Kiefer and Matthew Sievert, here to talk about quantum physics. Boris Kiefer has been at NMSU since 2003, following postdocs at Princeton. His research and teaching interests include quantum mechanics, computational physics, material science, and even more esoterically, quantum telecloning. Matthew Siebert has been at NMSU since 2020, following postdocs at Brookhaven and Los Alamos National Laboratories. His research focuses on theoretical nuclear physics that make use of observations of high-energy subatomic particles at various accelerator facilities. He's also an advocate for the construction of a future electron-ion collider in the United States. So Boris and Matthew, welcome to Delving In. So Richard Feynman, the, the great Nobel laureate physicist, remarked that if you think you understand quantum physics, also known as quantum mechanics, then you don't understand quantum physics. This is perhaps the pithiest summary of the counterintuitive nature of the subject, which has also earned the labels of crazy, unreal, and spooky, to quote Einstein. It would be helpful to hear about each of your professional backgrounds, your work in quantum physics, and your own experience of first being introduced to this ridiculously difficult to grasp concept. Great. Maybe I'll go first then. So thank you very much, Stuart, for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. So as you said, my background is in uh, high energy nuclear physics. The fundamental force that governs nuclear physics is called quantum chromodynamics or QCD. And it's one of the most complicated quantum theories that we know and understand and are actually sure exists in the real world. Particle physics for particle accelerators provide a unique challenge because it requires you to do not just quantum mechanics, but quantum mechanics and relativity together at the same time. And that really raises a number of challenges about how those two languages play or don't play well with each other. So I'm very passionate about quantum mechanics, the world that it reveals to us. For me, learning quantum mechanics was almost a leap of faith. There's a real crossing point in your physics education where you switch from studying balls rolling down ramps and pendulums swinging back and forth that you have an everyday intuition for and you start studying things like quantum mechanics and relativity that you don't have an everyday intuition for and quantum is where that mismatch is the most profound you have to learn a completely new intuition for how quantum physics works which is very different from all of your day-to-day -day intuition that serves you so well up until then to me, quantum mechanics is a point where a leap of faith happens where concepts like energy and momentum still make sense, but you no longer have the crutch of balls rolling down ramps and pendulums that you can easily visualize anymore. So to use a maybe not so accurate analogy, it's almost trying to understand at sunset when you've been blind since birth. Yeah, exactly. We have a certain intuition that we develop from living in the everyday world, but we don't have a corresponding intuition for how the quantum world operates until we've been working with it for a number of years. And you have to be willing to do that, willing to work with something that's non-intuitive. Absolutely. It challenges you in many different ways. Okay. Uh, Boris, how about you? Tell us about your background. Yes. So I was trained as a geologist, believe it or not. And I was, yes, got a PhD in geology from the University of Michigan. And afterwards, I realized that I went to, to NMSU, first Princeton, then NMSU, joined the physics department, and I revisited my passion for material science. And uh, what we do is we use quantum mechanics to describe those materials and their properties. So I did that for many years. And so I had always an interest in quantum and what it does, uh, how we can do good with it. Uh, that is to make new materials, find new materials, new, process, new processes, 
And then so over time, it merged into quantum information processing. So using those esoteric rules, and uh, Stuart, you already mentioned the spooky action, how to use some of these non-conventional concepts to inform us how to build bigger, better, and faster and novel ways for information processing. And maybe, just maybe, can we look through at physics, for example, through the lens of information processing? Because in the end of the day, that's a lot of the things that we do. That is what Matt does in high energy physics, that's what I do in, in material science. So it could be just that quantum mechanics is that enabling block that allows us to provide an understanding that's much broader than our individual disciplines, but uh, is a backdrop that allows us to move forward and build, build a bigger world. So that's my conviction. That's how I got to quantum mechanics. And that's my fundamental interest in using these esoteric rules, as you mentioned, as building blocks for a better future. So I, I think you're, you're referring to quantum computing. Yes, among other things. So it's quantum information processing in a, in a wide sense, including networking, computing, and sensing, the three pillars of that. So non-invasive, basically, imaging, medical sciences, for example, that sort of thing. There's a wide range of applications. If you want to talk about those later, great. But for my introduction, I think that's sort of my interest is very applied, very down to earth, trying to make the world a better place. And so in that sense, it is a little bit different from what Matt does. But nonetheless, we have the same goal at heart, and that is to bring quantum mechanics to the masses and to explain it in a context that is accessible and does not require the calculus, uh, Stuart, that you were alluding to earlier. That is how to create a intuitive, in as much or as little as it's possible, giving the spooky action and the unconventional features, but that is, makes it more accessible, less spooky, and demystifies it to a larger uh, audience. And so that's why I'm very grateful to be here uh, and have that opportunity to try this, to accomplish that goal. I think this may be the first time I, I've heard the, the term quantum mechanics or quantum physics and down to earth in the same sentence. Let's talk about the, the, the beginnings of quantum mechanics. My understanding is that the first experiment that pointed to it was the famous double slit experiment, which uh, showed that life behaves as a wave, even though Einstein had recently won a Nobel Prize for proving that life consists of particles called photons. So we had this weird duality. So tell us about the evidence for these contradictory ways of understanding light and how can anything possibly be both a wave and a particle? So that's a great question. The, the experimental evidence really presented physicists with this conundrum at the turn of the century, where we thought we understood how the universe worked and things were either particles or they were waves. And those two measurements that you just mentioned, the photoelectric effect, which proved definitively that something we knew was a wave was in fact made up of particles, photons, and then the counterpart experiment, electron diffraction in double slits or crystals or things like this, show that things that we knew were particles are in fact waves. And so that sort of destroyed this idea of a dichotomy that used to exist in classical physics between particles and waves. But really, the rabbit hole goes much deeper than that. There's a, a mathematical fact that waves are just a point of view. So you can take any mathematical function, a line, a parabola, anything you want, and you could write that function as a series of small rectangles that give you the height of your function no matter where it is. That's a mathematical fact. There's also an equivalent mathematical fact that you can take whatever function you want and you can build it by adding up waves. And so waves are a point of view that's a choice for how you want to take your function and understand its elementary components. 
And at a mathematical level, this is a perfectly ordinary thing. You can describe functions based on rectangles, or you can describe functions based on waves. In physics, we call that position space and momentum space. Position space is when you specify where an object is located, you squeeze its wave function and give its position in space. Momentum space describes things in terms of waves that have a definite direction of propagation, but they're spread out over all of space. So that sort of forced us into this notion of wave-particle duality, that we have to take it literally that an object is both a particle, you can localize it in space, and it has uh, a spatial extent. And we have to describe both of those languages, the wave-like properties and the point-like properties at the same time. And if I could just backtrack a little bit about waves, when you think about waterways, my understanding is that even though it looks like the water is traveling, the water molecules are traveling, in fact, it's the energy of the water molecules that's traveling. The, the, the water molecules are actually going just up and down, but they're going up and down in such a formation that the, the wave seems to have a direction, or it does have a direction, actually. So what's weird here, though, is that the particles of light are actually moving. They're not just moving up and down like in a wave. So it's so confusing. And then another confusing part is that you have a wave, but is there a medium for the wave? Every other kind of wave that we knew about, there's a medium. The wave is in water or it's it's in the air for sound waves, but somehow for light, it's its own medium. It's really strange. Yeah, absolutely. And that question about the medium or the lack thereof is directly tied up with the question of relativity and reference frames. Because for all waves that propagate through a medium, there's a natural reference frame where your medium is sitting static at rest and the wave is propagating through it. And as long as your wave is propagating through a medium, then you have a preferred reference frame. There's no relativity, so to speak. But if there is no reference frame and if space itself is the medium which is transmitting the waves, then there is no rest frame of space-time. And that forces you to start grappling also with how quantum mechanics changes from one observer to another observer. And that takes you in a very different direction about relativistic quantum mechanics. So let's review at this point about the double slit experiment. And for listeners who want to see this in a graphic form, of course, we can't do that on the radio, but there are many very good videos on YouTube that you can. So let's just a quick summary. And and I don't know if Boris, you want to say something else in addition. The ether, the question of the medium for the light traveling has been a, a, a stumbling block for physics for a long time, because historically we come from the description of mechanical motion. We have an atmosphere, we have something travels through something else. So it is natural to assume that light would behave the same way. And that was a pre- preeminent notion for a long time, that we need something. We need to have a background material where ether goes through and travels. Now, it took about 100 years from the original Young's ex- double-slit experiment, experiments in 1801 until about 1900 or so to figure out, no, there is no such thing. And that was, as Matt said, it comes, how does something travel through space and time? And by looking at this, there was an ingenious experiment by Mitchelson and Morley in the beginning of the 19th century, and that was clearly he had two arms. And they measured the travel time along this and perpendicular, and they found that there is no difference which if there would be a material, you would think there has to be a difference because the material in, in, the, in the horizontal and vertical direction are different. And the, the fact that there was a null result that they couldn't detect anything, let them finally to expand and say, maybe that ether, that, that background medium is actually not there. And that reiterates what uh, Matt was already saying, that light is a fascinating quantity because it travels without the need of a medium through empty space, through vacuum. 
And so I think that's just something really fascinating. It has other ramifications too, but I think just to come back uh, to that notion of the background medium that you alluded to and maybe showing how convoluted the history of quantum mechanics is, it's not a straight path. It is that many things came together over time. Scientists learned that we need to augment things sometimes gradually, and then all of a sudden there had to be a momentous change that is a revolution in our understanding. And this is how quantum mechanics was born at the end of the 19th century. So it is really, and I think the fact that it's so discontinuous, our understanding of, of nature, that also means there is a discontinuous change of our conceptual notion that is associated with that. And I think that's partly why it's so difficult uh, to understand quantum mechanics, coming back to what Feynman was saying and the, and the quote that you had earlier. I think that's re really deeply rooted in those sudden changes in uh, paradigms. So I, I think if I'm hearing you, one of the changes in, in how we conceive things is that we used to think of things in, as being analog and smooth, that a wave is just a smooth wave, when in fact it may be a digital, you know, consisting of little tiny bits of wave. And, and it, it may be even true of space-time, that space-time comes in little bits instead of being smooth, which is so counterintuitive. I think a part of the problem is that people were struggling with this concept, that change that you can have two things seemingly at the same time, and they're completely counterintuitive. You have a particle like a billiard ball, you would never say a billiard ball is a wave at the same time. It makes little sense. This is not our everyday experience, and it's exactly that problem that we're moving into a realm of science and nature and processes that are so far removed from our everyday experiences that we're just not quite used to describe those features. And I think that's part of the challenge. Our students, myself, Matt probably, if I may spe speculate, we all have faced and do face these same problems because it's so far outside of our everyday experience. So we've struggled with that. Feynman has struggled with that. Albert Einstein, to mention another famous name, struggled with that. Lots of people struggled with that. And to this day, I think it's a struggle. I know that we agreed in advance that we're probably not going to talk about speculative or spiritual things, but I can almost imagine God upstairs laughing at how difficult he's made, it, made the universe to understand. <laughs> I like the quote from Einstein. He both said that God does not play dice with the universe because he was skeptical with, of quantum mechanics. But he also said that the miracle of nature is that it is comprehensible to us. It doesn't have to be comprehensible to us at all. But the fact that nature does play by certain intelligible rules, even if those rules are very different from our day-to-day -day experience, is what's so profound about it, that it is possible for us to understand even something so alien to our day-to-day -day experience. And I think maybe we can pat ourselves on the back as a human race, that we're willing to understand things that seem incomprehensible and, and counterintuitive, that we're willing to keep going forward with knowledge even though it doesn't seem to make sense. Maybe eventually it will make more sense, but maybe not. We really don't know yet. And I have to add on to that, of course, that scientists are just as human as the rest of us. We don't like to be wrong and we don't like to admit our mistakes. So it's not that we had a collective enlightenment in the early 1900s and agreed that quantum mechanics is the right thing. Physicists were dragged kicking and screaming into the new millennium by the experiment that refused to let us hold on to the previous explanations. So experiment is capable of overturning millennia's long paradigms and forcing us to accept very uncomfortable truths about nature. Yeah, it's like the slogan on the Missouri license plate, the show me state, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so speaking about experiment, let, let's do a, just a quick summary of the double slit experiment, in, including the version where you s send one photon or one electron through at a time. Sure, so if you start with a, with a lot of photons, a lot of electrons and you have a double slit experiment, 
statistically speaking, you're going to go to the left or the right slit. Okay, so that's the classical expectation. What you observe, however, if the slits are closely enough spaced, is that you see a different pattern. It does maybe not come as a total surprise because you can still argue that we have lots of them and it can go either to the left or to the right. So you see these two spots and maybe that might be not coming as a total surprise. But if you dilute and reduce the amount of electrons and photons to it, as you just were saying, you still recover the same sort of feature. And that is becoming a very big problem because you shouldn't. And that is simply highlighting the problem with those experiments. Classically, it should not be there. There is either goes left or right, but not both at the same time. So you should not create an interference pattern or something more complicated than two spots. And yet you do. So him simply highlighting that, yes, there is a different piece of physics that we're missing in the description. And wave particle duality, as uh, uh, Matt already said, is part of that story, clearly. It really challenges the, the most basic notion of all of that, that we know what a unit is, that a unit of one thing, one thing isn't just one thing. And how much more basic can you get than that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The quantum mechanics forces you to choose. You can't have all of the nice properties that you like about classical physics. You can't have deterministic predictions where all future outcomes are exactly determined if you know the initial condition. You can't have locality. You can choose your poison when it comes to quantum me mechanics about which versions or which nice properties of classical mechanics you're willing to sacrifice but you can't keep them all. It looks like so far we have talked about physics and quantum. And so it is not quite historically correct that it's all physics. The experiment that led to the development of quantum mechanics or modern physics are carried by a much broader set of people. For example, in chemistry, earlier experiments in chemistry dis uh, discovered that electrons or whatever these objects were, they only can jump or change in are terms of quantities that are described by integers. So they're not continuous changes. They're discrete changes. And so the chemistry was quite important in the development of quantum mechanics as well. So it was after Young's 1801 double slit experiment, but it predated all the other stuff. So that's one comment that I wanted to make, that there's another stream of uh, reasoning that led uh, and inspired these changes. So it comes from chemistry, not just from physics, but back to a totally different field. And that might come as a, more of a surprise. Uh, in 1900, Max Planck looked at the radiation of the sun. And the radiation of the sun was a big problem for science at the time. It was two theories that could not be combined into one continuous theory. And so what Max Planck said is there has to be a discrete unit. His, he postulated that there's a discrete unit, a photon package. A photon is a particle that causes the unification of these two theories. So that was sort of, Max Planck, I would say, is the grandfather of uh, quantum mechanics and this modern way of thinking. Quantum mechanics is not just born out from physics and what we discovered over time, but it's inspired also by other disciplines, by chemistry in this case, and for example, astronomy. So I wanted to move on and, and talk about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, another weird kind of thing. And if you want to throw in about Schrodinger's cat, that's something that always is very uh, macabre, but entertaining. Yeah, so maybe I'll take a stab at it if you don't mind, Boris. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is one of my favorite properties of quantum mechanics because I'm a father. And I feel like I experience <laughs> this notion of the uncertainty principle really viscerally in my day-to-day -day life because I've got a seven-year-old son. And anyone with children knows that the more you try to make a child sit still, 
the more you try to sit them in their chair and localize them, you can almost see them start to vibrate. Like the more you try to get your kid to stay in one location, their momentum just starts to become uncertain. It fluctuates. They hate standing still. And nature is exactly like that too. If you take an electron and you try to localize it in, let's say a potential, you trap it in a barrier at a very small distance. The electron, just like my son, starts vibrating in its chair and tries to escape. There's a minimum amount of momentum that comes from squeezing it down and trying to make it sit still and behave long enough for you to observe it. So that literally translates to a minimum amount of momentum or a minimum amount of energy called zero point energy that confined systems have. So that's my new intuition for quantum mechanics is that it's like parenting and that you have to be careful how much you try and control your quantum particles. They won't do exactly what you tell them to. Well, all the credits to your son for enabling that insight. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) What about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle as relating to Schrodinger's cat? So the basic... The basic issue is referred to in a few different ways. Sometimes it's called in dramatic terms, the collapse of the state vector, but it refers to the fact that in quantum mechanics, not every property is measurable at the same time. That classically you can talk about where an object is and how fast it's going with no contradiction. But because of this quantum uncertainty, you you can't specify at the same time both the position information and the momentum information. And there's a mathematical way to specify that these two variables are compatible with each other. And all of the physical properties that you want to describe about a system can be listed out. And there's a maximum amount of information you can specify at the same time. And when you encounter some of those incompatible measurements, position and momentum, energy and time, then you can specify one of them, but the more you specify one, the more you unspecify the other one. That's the essence of the uncertainty principle. It's quantum physics whack-a-mole. Yes, exactly. And it only applies to certain pairs of observables. And the fact that you have some of these incompatible measurements at all is a uniquely quantum property. And and I, I read online, I don't know that this is accurate, that this is a problem with studying waves in general, not just quantum level waves. It has to do with the wave function of these things. It's because it's not actually a particle, or at least it isn't until you measure it. Because it has this wave-like properties that you can't really pin it down until you've measured it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If you take the wave picture that Matt has been already talking about and alluded to, and Stuart, you as well, and it means that if you have one wave and you have another wave, and you ask what's the resulting wave, you just add them together, the amplitudes in space and time. You add them together and you get the corresponding waves. It's like you take two rocks, drop them into a pond, and then you look for the wave patterns as they overlap. So they just form this combined pattern called a superposition. And so that is what that superposition principle does. Now, quantum mechanics is the same principle, but on steroids. Here in quantum mechanics, we don't apply to physical waves as they bob up and down, but we apply that principle to the state's a system can be in. So it's a, it's a more abstract con, uh, conceptualization of that same property. Just to make that comment that was creating us cat, when you think about this, the cat can either be alive or dead. That's the two options there are, nothing in between. So you have two states, and now here comes the crucial part. So you put the cat into a box, close the box, and then before you observe and open the box, that's your observation, before you do that step, you don't know if the cat is dead or alive. So in that sense, the two states that can be in is either dead or alive. 
And until you open the box, you don't know. And you have to describe the state of the cat, your ignorance about the state of the cat as a superposition, as a combination of these two individual possible outcomes. Which was not just that you don't know. My understanding is it's not just the lack of knowledge about whether the cat is alive. The cat is simultaneously alive and dead. And Schrodinger came up with this thought experiment to show how ridiculous that was. Exactly. Exactly. It was supposed to be a, a reduction to absurdity to show that this doesn't make any sense at all, that we might be okay with the idea of an electron is in a superposition of being spin up and spin down, and I don't know which is which until I measure it. But if you try to take that and apply it to a real life situation like the life or death of a cat, it seems to lead to absurd conclusions. Yeah, and, and I think the physics community is, is divided in this, isn't there? It's some physicists think there's going to be some future theory that will make this make more sense. And there are other physicists that says, no, it's just that reality is absurd. Uh, I think that's an excellent observation. And some of us would hope that there will be such a reductionist uh, view that will come back at some point in time where we say, oh, we know if you know all the initial conditions, we can predict the future perfectly well. So restore classical physics, the sense of the 19th century and, and up to quantum mechanics. And there is a bell in the 1960s started thinking about this. And he came up with a, an experiment that you can run uh, to distinguish these two possible scenarios. Will it ever be possible to, to recover the reductionist uh, classical interpretation of physics? Or are we always going to be stuck with quantum mechanics, the spookiness, and uh, all the other uh, things that we might or might not well understand? And the answer is, and I think probably he had a very bad day in the office at that point in time, because the experiment shows that quantum mechanics is complete. The experiment, to the best of our knowledge at the time, and since then, every 10 years, there's another set of experiments, better and better, but they, all they do is reduce the amount of error that we have in that statement, that quantum mechanics and is complete in that sense. So the future hopeful is something that will restore classical physics, like Einstein, for example, wanted, for quantum mechanics, or what people have called hidden variables, uh, is highly questionable. Yeah, that's that hope is fading away. This is a good point, I think, to quote from John Bell. He said that Niels Bohr was inconsistent, unclear, willfully obscure, and right. <laughs> Einstein, <laughs> Einstein was consistent, clear, down to earth, and wrong. <laughs> that can happen. Yep. Yeah, nature plays out that way sometimes. Stuart, speaking to the role of the observer in quantum mechanics, I wanted to offer an example that might clarify this a little bit, because especially when we come to this point about Schrodinger's cat and is it alive or is it dead and what is the role of the observer in quantum mechanics, that tends to lead to a whole lot of very deep rabbit hole thinking about mysticism and the role of some identity as the observer in physics. But let me give you an example. Consider the case of solar neutrinos. So these are neutrinos produced in the sun in the nuclear reactions that take place. They propagate through space. And then when they reach our atmosphere, they interact with the atmosphere before they eventually reach the surface of the earth and we detect them. Neutrinos come in many different flavors when they're produced. There are electron neutrinos, muon neutrinos, tau neutrinos at the point that they're created. But the funny thing about neutrinos is that one of those sets of incompatible properties of the neutrinos is their flavor and their mass. You can't specify at the same time which flavor of neutrino you have and what mass it is. And as a consequence of that, the neutrinos are created with a definite flavor. But once they're created, their flavor has a superposition of different masses. It could be either the heavy one or the light one or something else. And then when the neutrinos 
propagate through space and they're observed, they're projected onto a specific mass, their energy, and then they interact with the upper atmosphere. And even though they came in, let's say, even they were created by, say, electron neutrinos, when they interact with the upper atmosphere, they can change their flavor because of this superposition exercise. So the upper atmosphere is the observer that says, hey, neutrinos came in as a mass eigenstate, and I don't know which flavor it was. It could have been an electron flavor, muon flavor, tau flavor, and the atoms of the upper atmosphere are observing the neutrinos and selecting on, oh, this one was an electron, this one is a muon. We can see that effect in the neutrino spectrum by the changes in flavor of neutrinos between the flavors that they're created with and the flavors that they're measured with. In that case, the observer is not even sentient. The observer is the atmosphere. Our listeners weren't able to see you making air quotes with your fingers there. That observer in quotes, that it doesn't have anything to do with consciousness is I think what you're getting at because the kind of spiritual rabbit holes that we're talking about, and I'm not gonna comment as to whether those are true or not, but they're, they're not in the physics and it really doesn't have to do with consciousness as much as we'd like to believe that. So that superposition property is absolutely critical, but it really describes what happens when no measurement has occurred. As soon as there is some interaction, some measurement that has a consequence, that's the observation that collapses the uncertainty and gives you one particular outcome out of that probability. Yeah, it really speaks to the kind of conceptual fuzziness of the whole term measurement. You know, what does it mean to measure something? And I think what you're getting at is that measurement just means that it's an interaction with something physical that changes the energy of whatever it is you're observing. And that's the critical part that you said there is that the measurement changes the system. That's an inevitable part of a quantum theory is that observing something is not a passive activity. You change the system fundamentally when you perform a measurement. There's one last concept I want to talk about before we talk about applications, and that's the uh, concept of quantum entanglement. So what is quantum entanglement? How was it empirically verified? Einstein lost on this one. <laughs> he didn't often lose, but this one he did. How is it explained? It's so bizarre. So it's, what is it and how is it explained? So superposition, we already talked about as a valuable quantum resource. Uh, the second quantum resource that is truly different from classical physics is entanglement. And so what it means is in, uh, that you think about a composite of particles. Take a set of particles that you put together, build one composite. And then you, and then you, you measure one component, one particle, and you realize that the, the rest of the particle is in part at least dominated and influenced by what you just measured. So you cannot separate those co that composite particle into a lot of independent pieces. They all belong to one composite. And so that might, as a concept, might not be so strange. But if you take that to the limit and now you're separating particles in space, so you just separate them, this composite particle separated and put it in different laboratories far away, you still have the same connection between these particles. If you have one particle, what you do with that will affect what happens on the other side. And that's one of the other pieces that uh, seems to defy classical physics. It's something completely non-classical, but it's a huge resource and it is a defining feature of quantum mechanics. The, these two particles can be separated by vast distances and yet seemingly communicate instantaneously which seems to violate the speed limit for the speed of light. So how can this possibly be? It doesn't make sense. So what happens is that 
one has to be careful what is defines the reality in what lab. Because when I measure, the other person far away does not know what I measured. So the communication has to be done via normal channels that is something less or equal to the speed of light. And uh, so it, it does not violate classical physics and, and the relativity in that sense, because you it just re relies on the fact what is reality in my reference frame versus reality in somebody else's, else's reference frame. And that has to be exchanged. All right, let, let, let me push this a little bit. Let's say you have a lab on Pluto. You have quantum entangled particles here and on Pluto, and you, you measure it here, and they measure it on Pluto at a designated time, and you record the time at which the measurements were, were made. And you can show that it was instantaneous, I would think. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. But you have to still exchange the information. Later, yes, yeah, yes. But so in other words, it doesn't violate anything because until you know the information from the other person, uh, you don't know what the other person has measured. So you can, you have to make that comparison, but the comparison has to be communicated classically. What do you think, Matt? No problem here? Yeah, I think there's no contradiction there. I think the one way to see it is that it's impossible to send a quantum message this way because you, you couldn't send a quantum message from the Earth to Pluto this way because the person on Earth cannot control the outcome of the measurement. You will randomly get either outcome one or outcome two, and whichever outcome you got, you're sure that your partner on Pluto got the other one. But you can't choose whether you want to send a one or a zero to Pluto. You randomly send one or the other. That's right. It's, yeah, it's fundamentally random. So I think that shows the loophole in the argument that this is not faster than light communication. It's the loss of the separate identity of your two particles. It's something that only happens in quantum mechanics because you can have two particles that are quantum indistinguishable from each other. And you mix them together in such a way that you no longer know what is particle A separately and what is particle B separately. You have a, a composite system that has properties as a whole, but no longer separately specifies what A or what B is doing. But it's theoretically instantaneous though, right? Even though we can't make use. Yeah, that's right. Which still, I think still raises the question. I mean, it's, it's some physicists have proposed that they communicate instantaneously in, in order to, and, that, and that in order to not violate the speed limit of light, there's a backwards propagation in time <laughs> in order to get there without going faster than the speed of light. It, it just speaks to how weird this stuff is, that he, someone, someone would even think of that as an explanation. The, the backwards propagation in time is also another point that tends to lead to infinite spiraling down rabbit holes. This is something that happens inevitably when you put quantum mechanics and relativity together, because quantum mechanics pretty much inevitably tends to violate causality, which is really what you're talking about, the speed of light limit. You don't necessarily even need entanglement to get that. You can just say, if I sit on Earth with a wave function, uh, an electron, and I let it go, and I let its wave function spread out over time, and you watch it, you watch where does the electron wave function go, the electron wave function spreads out over time, and it spreads out over time faster than the speed of light, as you say. There is, in quantum mechanics, there is superluminal transmission of structure, if you like, always. That poses a fundamental problem about how quantum mechanics is supposed to work. And it seems a priori incompatible with relativity. It, you can't satisfy causality. The solution to that is a really beautiful, elegant solution, which involves antiparticles. It's impossible in quantum mechanics to prevent your electrons from spreading out and touching things faster than the speed of light. And so in order to forbid 
probability from going faster than the speed of light, you need a cancellation. And the way that relativistic quantum field theory achieves that is because of a balance between the flow of positive probability one way with particles and negative probability another way with antiparticles. Everything looks different depending on your frame of reference in relativity, but one way to think about it is to say that I have an equal current of positive probability going faster than the speed of light one way, negative probability going the other way, and they cancel each other out. That's how you get the enforcement of the speed of light for real communication in a relativistic quantum field theory. Okay, so if our listeners are at all confused by what you just said, I think that's understandable. <laughs> you know, it's incredibly difficult. I've read somewhere that there's a notion that there's no such thing as a vacuum, that there's constant uh, production of particles and antiparticles annihilating each, each other at the subatomic level, and so there's really no such thing as empty space, really, which is really crazy. So with this last segment, let's talk about applications, because anyone listening to this so far would think, what? This, this has applications? <laughs> it sounds so esoteric. How can there possibly be real-world uses of this? So I, I guess, Boris, this is more in your bailiwick, but Matthew, feel free to jump in as well. Yeah, I think it's in some areas of information processing, we, it has become clear that we've reached the end of the road and we we'll continuously have to reinvent and rethink how do we deal with information. At the end of the road, in terms of uh, the, the uh, miniaturization and the process of speeding things up, that we're reaching a limit. Yes, for example, yes, or making them better, uh, increasing uh, resolution of microscopes, uh, non-invasive uh, observations in medical sciences, all types of things that one can imagine where you bring two systems in contact really and do an observation, just as we discussed before. And so if you think about medical science, for example, what do you do? You observe something and then you draw conclusions from it, but it's an observation. And so what Feynman in 1980s started thinking was, early 80s, was maybe we can use uh, the rules of quantum, quantum mechanics and quantum physics as a resource to enhance and amplify those abilities. And so then it, he voiced that opinion at a conference, and then it took a few years uh, to find some proof of concept. And it turns out, yes, under certain circumstances, you can use that principle of superposition that we talked about in the context of Schrodinger's cat and entanglement that we just talked about a minute ago you can put those together and you can really uh, solve and show that you can solve certain computational problems more efficiently and more effectively than you can do with any classical computer. And ever since then, the companies have started on jumping on that bandwagon and create those abilities and quantum computing is at the forefront. And you look at the, on the on, online and you find a lot of information about that. We're at the beginning, but it's an exciting time because that means at the beginning means that we, lots of people can contribute to the process. We need many people who can do certain tasks in that area, and we will need more of them. And the question is, like your program here, how can we make this more accessible to a broader range of people to contribute to that process and create the quantum-skilled workforce that we will undoubtedly need in the near future? It's a question. It's not, it's, there's no solution. But so, so we need to have, keep an eye on quantum mechanics, quantum physics, and education as well. So quantum computing is probably among the uh, more developed things, in my opinion, and that's my personal interest uh, to look into algorithms who take advantage of that. But there are other things like networking, entanglement and networking. How do we, or communication, how do we send these the information between two distant computers? Entanglement will certainly be part of that solution. So we, we see that those spooky actions and the mysterious ways of how quantum mechanics works comes back in full force. It's a resource to solve these problems, but it's a complicated resource because it does not come easy. 
And that's why we have to start thinking about this and also think, how do we make it more accessible to the broader audience? So I'm really grateful that you have this program here because that is the first step in the right direction, in my opinion. And I think one of the other things that you didn't mention, which is included in this topic, is cryptography. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, cryptography is a great place to start. So it, it, there's two things to say here. Cryptography with a quantum computer, if you can decompose large numbers and see if they're products of prime numbers, which is part of uh, the encryption and algorithms, at least some of them, classically, well, then you can crack those algorithms. Okay, so there is a, a real danger that you can do that faster than on a classical computer because you have access to more efficient algorithms. On the other hand, you can also use uh, the same technique and say, I can actually use that to figure out if somebody has interfered with the, the transmission of the message because, as Matt was pointing out and the rules of quantum mechanics say, what is going to happen here is that as the eavesdropper does a measurement, listening in on a, con a secret conversation, that wave function will change, that state will change. And this is a physically measurable change. And you can figure out if somebody eavesdropped or not. If that has happened, you change your protocol. So in that sense, yes, cryptography is a great place to start. It is very important to many applications, obviously, from trans credit card transactions to anything else. And so there is a wide range of applications where quantum will make a difference in the future. And we're still at the beginning of figuring out what this is. What's your guess as to how long it will take to, um, to actually make use of quantum computers? I've heard that it's devilishly difficult to get them stable and it requires super low temperatures and it's incredibly expensive kind of apparatus. Yes, that's why there's not that many. There's a lot of companies, startup companies doing this, but it's not a cheap endeavor. It's not like you buy your laptop and put the same price tag. So it's significantly more expensive. Most of it right now, is as far as I understand, goes into cooling these machines, as you said, to very low temperatures, because the quantum features that we have, a lot of them, are only enabled at low temperatures. So we have to be in the right uh, physical state to uh, enable that. That's the price tag. Uh, lots of liquid helium for cooling, that sort of thing. So most of the money goes into cooling. But uh, stabilizing those uh, superposition states that we need uh, for computing, that is also a problem. So currently, the lifetimes are measured by microseconds, not by hours, days, and months, as we do on classical computers. So we're truly at the beginning, but at the same time, because you can so many things in parallel on these machines in, in, a, in a quantum parallelism that allows us to use these short, short times and to start learning what is going to be possible in the near term, and then what will happen in 10 years. It's really hard to say. The companies uh, like IBM say, oh, 127 qubit processor, yeah, that's great. We need to figure out what happens. And that is errors are really right now one of the biggest problems. Because if you have a small number of a small computing resource and you have to correct for errors, there might be an issue depending on how you do it. Because part of that resource needs to be allocated to the correction process. And therefore, you have much less than you think to do these calculations. But to give you maybe a an idea, and I had a master's student a few years ago and was working in telecloning. Those exercises that we did, they, they were involving maybe four to five to six qubits, but not a thousand, a million, that's not yet possible. And so we're looking forward to go through the area. It will take time, but the promise is if we can do it, or if someone can do it, it will change the world forever. And so that's why lots of countries try to make that happen because it's such a, we expect it to be such a profound change on our outlook of nature 
and how we deal with information processing in all types of sectors, technology, society, everywhere. It will be affected, fundamentally affected by that change. So what do people do? Coming back to your question, right now, people, researchers all around the globe try to build better hardware so we can support more of these esoteric qubits that we need for computing and processing. But also there's the other, the flip side is you can start studying algorithms and solve problems on and simulate how much resources would I need to solve those problems. A lot of that is about scaling. And they say, if you want to do this, you need a thousand qubits, that sort of resource. And so we can, we build a roadmap where we say in the near future, we can do this, then we need this and this. So we have a ladder type approach to this. As we move forward, we know what type of more complexity of problems we can start addressing and solving. So it will be quite interesting. And just as a last point, and this is when you look online as well, you see a lot of that, uh, a word in terms of application that is very much a current topic is machine learning and artificial intelligence. And this will be one of the areas where you will find those applications because machine learning and, and artificial intelligence in some sense have described systems that are very complex and very reliant because once one part of the system relies on the other part of the system, just like entanglement shows in some, in a simplistic way, it shows that there are analogs and direct parallels between these, these different approaches. So that's why all types of uh, aspects that go along with quantum computing uh, will touch upon a lot of different areas in science and technology. Just a matter of maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. I'm not sure if by the end of my career, I think we will not be there, but by the end of Matt's career, we might. So we're talking about tens of years, probably. That's my. We won't have quantum cell phones. <laughs> not unless we have a little bit of liquid helium inside each phone. Or you find a technology that works at room temperature. Oh, okay. So superconductors, maybe? Superconductors, not quite yet. So they have transition temperatures of about 80 Kelvin, seven, maybe, maybe 100 right. Kelvin. So they're still below room temperature. But what I'm oh, thinking yeah. is maybe you can use uh, photons, the same as we started today's conversation about light and how light enables the strange behavior of light as it comes to uh, the fore here one more time is maybe one can use photons and that light, these light features, the quantum mechanics of light, their interaction with matter, certainly one can, one can build quantum devices based on photons and light. And so those might operate at room temperature. And if I could just clarify, a qubit is not a biblical measurement from the elbow to the tip of the finger. It's spelled differently. It's not with a C, it's with a Q, Q-U-B-I-T. And it, I think what it means is that it's one superimposed bit of information that's both yes and no at the same time until it's... Just like Schrodinger's cat was a superposition of that in the life of two states, so is the qubit a superposition of two other states that describe the quantum nature of that system, yes. And as a result, you get four possibilities instead of the usual two in a bit. You get, and then when it's raised to an exponent, you get large numbers of possibilities, much larger, much faster. You can think of it as a yes and no, or like X and Y axes, and you can have any angle you want in the XY plane between yes and no. So I'm wondering, in terms of applications, I, I came across a, a video by Jim Al-Khalili. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a really good popular science educator. He makes very entertaining films with, I think, really good content. And he, he did one about quantum mechanics. It's two, uh, each one is an hour long video. And one of them was about modern applications of, of quantum mechanics uh, in the realm of quantum biology. 
Really interesting. So he gives a bunch of different examples. One is that it's been discovered that robins navigate using the Earth's magnetic field, possibly by using a quantum phenomenon. A fruit fly may, the, the sense of smell of the fruit fly may be identify chemicals, not just by their shape, but by their quantum vibration. He talks about tadpoles turning to frogs using quantum tunneling of protons. And this is all weird, weird stuff. And he also talked about pl plants absorption of photons for photosynthesis, depending on superposition. That, that, so just a bunch of different applications and the experiments that seem to support those contentions. Really quite interesting. Those aren't necessarily applications for technology, but they're certainly interesting in terms of scientific understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. One of the most important building blocks of chemistry is this hexagon carbon ring. And the structure of this hexagonal benzene ring, I believe, comes specifically from quantum mechanics, that you can show that there are two degenerate solutions for the electron configurations, and reality ends up giving you a superposition of the two. So something which is more stable and uh, symmetric across the different sites on the hexagon. In terms of quantum impact on biology, certainly all of the biochemistry there is strongly influenced by the quantum properties of those carbon chains. Which is really interesting because I, I think until I came across that, I just assumed that quantum mechanics, those are important for very tiny scale phenomena. But once you get to the larger phenomena, then classical mechanics is what what works and not just what works, but really the, the tiny changes on the quantum level would not be relevant, but apparently maybe it can be in certain circumstances. Yeah, nature is very efficient at taking advantage of the systems that exist. So I don't think it's an accident that our bodies store the huge amount of information necessary to construct cells in very small cell nuclei and that the properties of DNA itself are highly quantum in nature. Nature takes advantage of all of those features. Boris, in your resume, you talked about quantum telecloning. And I thought that was maybe an application that you could talk about in layman's language. It sounds crazy. I, I can picture what it might mean, but I'd like to hear from you. You're trying to encode a bit of information over here and you send it to the other side. And so classically, let me just maybe not demystify the whole process. That might be a little bit too much, but let me just set up the mystery that goes along with that. And that is if you have this encoded, you try to get the information from one place to another place and you want to do it in a way that you obviously do not distort the message. The problem with that is, this is classic, you have you, a phone, our conversation here, we rely on the fact that the information is transcribed and transmitted uh, properly. It turns out that in quantum mechanics, because of the fundamental laws of quantum mechanics, that is no longer possible. The reason is that it's, and that's the no cloning theorem, that's the cloning part uh, in, in this process that says you cannot copy an unknown quantum state perfectly. It is just not possible with the rules of quantum mechanics. So the quantum information can only exist in one place, either in my office at home, Stuart in your office or in Matt's office. And but it cannot be at the same time in all three places at the same time with the same fidelity, 100% correct. And so what telecloning does is it takes that message and it finds ways uh, to augment that initial information. And then without violating the cloning theorem, transmit as much of the information as possible correctly. And that's what that is. So basically what it says is 
quantum mechanics says in a quantum conversation, you cannot have a teleconference. Okay, that's interesting because the term telecloning makes it sound like a copy is being made at some distant place, almost like a tr transporter in Star Trek. Yes, but that's not quite possible, unfortunately. That's against the laws of quantum mechanics. So, you, so what you do is you try to add information that you don't disturb the original message and you measure on those edited so-called ancilla qubits. That's the extra part that you use to stabilize this. So you leave the original message intact and you work on the others uh, to figure out what's going on. And then hopefully on the other side, depending on how you do it, you will have uh, a decoding book. If then the, uh, the recipient measures something, they know what they need to do to recover the original message. So that's the idea. But you have to have something in addition to bypass the constraints of the no cloning theorem. Okay, so it's, it's again a cryptography kind of application primarily? Yes, yes, in some sense, yes. I'm wondering with our final uh, moments here, if, if both of you can make recommendations to our listeners who are interested in learning more about this, what, what can they do? Yeah, so I'm happy to take this. I guess as a parting message, I want to emphasize that even though quantum mechanics seems so strange and alien to us, quantum electrodynamics, the theory of electrons and photons and how they interact with each other, is the most successful theory of physics that has ever been created. That is the gold standard by which all other theories of nature are tested. We understand the quantum interactions of electrons and photons to such insane precision that we literally use that as the definition of time itself. The definition of the second, the SI definition of the second is certain number of frequency, a certain number of periods of the photon emission during a particular hyperfine transition of the cesium ground state. We can predict that number so precisely from theory that we use it as the definition of time. We can calculate all of these observables to thousands of digits of precision. That is the remarkable success of quantum mechanics, and it has permeated our everyday life in terms of semiconductor technology, superconductors, cell phones, everything. We live in a quantum world, recognize it or not, and, and the future is quantum. For the audience to get more involved, I have to absolutely give a plug for the next generation particle accelerator, which is being designed and built here in the United States. It is the Electron Ion Collider, or the EIC. It's being built as an upgrade to an existing particle accelerator facility called RIC in Long Island, New York. And the purpose of the Electron Ion Collider is to measure properties of protons and nuclei with unprecedented precision to answer questions about where the mass and the spin and the structure of protons and nuclei and all of the nuclear physics that we see and understand on a day-to-day -day basis really comes from on a fundamental level. This is comparable to the difference between understanding your textbook level equations for electricity and magnetism and being able to develop superconductor technology, even though superconductors are just electricity and magnetism, quote unquote, with our discoveries in nuclear physics for nuclear technologies of the next century. So I guess your message is to stay tuned. Stay tuned, get involved. There, is, uh, uh, there are uh, websites, groups for the electron ion collider. Uh, the, uh, there's an EIC user group, uh, and there will be more messaging coming forward as construction and approvals move forward on the EIC. So that will be happening right here in our own backyard. Okay, so just very quickly, last thoughts, Boris. We're uh, just about out of, out of time here. I will keep it very short. I think you said it all, Stuart and Matt. 
stay tuned. I think the world inherently is informed by the rules of quantum mechanics, and we will see a lot of new insights, either as the fundamental fabric of nature goes with high energy physics and the origin of the universe, as well as quantum technologies that will enable new companies, new ideas come to the fore and allow us to look at the world surrounding us in a very different light, no pun intended. And so we can, and so we can do and move forward, build better technologies for a better tomorrow. Thank you so much, Boris Kiefer and Matthew Sievert, uh, physics professors at New Mexico State University here talking about quantum physics. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stuart. It was a great pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.